At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's happening, guys? Happy Wednesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. I hope you all had a great weekend. I hope you got to watch a little bit of Olympics. I know I did, and I'll tell you a story about that later on. But coming up on today's show, Francis Ngannou is fired up. I might have to stop defending Conor McGregor, and we've got a title fight book. All that later, but first... Let's begin with an incredible fight that we saw go down on Saturday night. Okay, Dillashaw Sandhagen. Look, where do you want to sit on this, guys? You can either be of the school of mind that TJ spent some time in the principal's office and therefore you want to hold him back, or you can look at he served his time and now he gets a fresh start. I'm I'm not going to guide you, right? I sat in that same principal's office, so do I come to you biased? I don't think so. I don't think that I do that. I think if a, if a guy gets a new start, he gets a new start. And I only say that because what a war. I mean, this was an epic battle. This is what this is what careers are made of, is matches like this. And there's no way to tell this story without being critical of Sandhagen, which is the last thing I intend to do, truly. But to look at that fight and watch where Sandhagen gave rounds away, And there's a piece of the psychology that will happen to you if you ever end up in battles like that. In any game that you guys played, you'll know this is true to some extent. You will have been through it, where you decide, I've done enough in this round. Now I just have to run out the clock. Even if things go his way, even if I don't offer the same resistance as I generally would, I've done enough. And it was a bad calculation. It wasn't true. TJ was doing the exact opposite math which is I haven't done enough in this round, but there's still time left. I've got to go out, i got to get him down, and i got to control position. Daniel Cormier had made a comment. And Daniel, looking at that fight, don't forget this is the main event. So there was 11 fights on the card, 10 other fights had happened, and Daniel made an observation that he shared with the audience as the announcer. And he said, if you look at the decisions that have happened tonight, these judges have favored position. That's true. I saw what Daniel saw, and so did you guys. I just don't know that it was limited to that night. I don't think that we had some special group of judges that happened to look at top control. I can date that thing back the first time they set that cage up in 1993. Position has always mattered. And I have heard a number of people argue about the decision. I wasn't one of those people, and I admittedly, I'm not great at judging fights. But I do understand the criteria, 
I do understand that the first criteria is damage. And whenever these fights get done, there's always a stat that comes up. I call it CompuBox. That's not what it's called. I think it's called fight stats. CompuBox is a boxing term, and maybe even more selective, it's a boxing term used by Showtime or HBO. I'm going to use the vernacular. They show the CompuBox, and they want to talk about effective strikes with fists, effective kicks, takedown discrepancies, submission attempts. It's one of these things. And if you look at those numbers, they look a little bit better for Sandhagen. But that is a narrative created by somebody else other than the Nevada State Athletic Commission who sanctioned this, who follows the unified rules, who has stated a criteria number one as damage. And an example that I know you'll be able to relate to and one that you'll be able to remember, but it's Mike Tyson. I don't know that Mike ever had a fight where he touched that guy more times than he got touched. But boy, did he do it hard when he stuck. That's where the damage comes in. That's a subjective term. It's a big difference in the pros and in the amateurs. In the amateurs, it is point fighting. It is who touched who more. With what part of your glove, right? The Olympics are going. Are you guys watching? What part of your glove touches what part of his body? Boom, you get a point. And the judges are all trying to keep track, and they're trying to count, and they're trying to write down the tally while they're watching the action. It's why it never works. But either way, it's a difference between the amateurs and the pros. And Taekwondo isn't any different. Although I watched fencing. We're talking unarmed combat. I watched arm combat yesterday. Fencing. But it was still, you get points for contact as opposed to damage. Now, that's a subjective term, and I'm not forcing down your throat that TJ did more damage. I'm reminding you that that's what the judges looked for in conjunction with top position. I thought it was the right call. I thought it was an awesome fight. And that's why I said that a moment ago about Sandhagen. No part, look, there was two guys that caused an awesome fight. You guys want to know something interesting? To compliment Sandhagen, you guys know Ricky Simone, right? My teammate. Ricky Simone's ranked number seven in the world, and that's a little bit low, quite frankly. Rob Font, I believe, is number two. Ricky beat Rob. He lost a decision. Ricky beat Rob. Ricky's one of the top guys out there. I just happened to see him. I saw him on Sunday after the fight. So, by the way, Ricky, who should Sandhagen fight next? Not TJ. I think we all know TJ's the number one contender. Who should Sandhagen fight next? Now, this was a prime opportunity... For Ricky to say to me, me, for me to then go out and tell all of you guys, I got inside scoop, and Ricky Simone just challenged Corey Sandhagen. That's not what he said. Listen to what Ricky said. And I bring you Ricky because he matters. Ricky has the right to an opinion. He's one of the top guys in the sport, let alone that division. He said, I think that Sandhagen should fight Rob Font. I said, how do you get to that map? Historically speaking, if you lost your last match, you fight another guy who lost his last match. It's not an absolute, but boy, it's close. You're in the 95 percentile range. That's the way it's done. Winner versus winner. Loss versus a loss. And Ricky said, Sandhagen could have won that fight. It was razor thin. I'm changing the words, but this is what Ricky said. Sandhagen could have won that fight. Many people think he did. If TJ wins that fight and gets to become the number one contender, Sandhagen doesn't fall. Oh, and by the way, if TJ gets in there with the winner of Aljo and Jan, in the meanwhile, you're going to need a number one contender's fight. I think that 
Sandhagen is one win away if it's over Rob Font from being right back into a championship. Major compliment to Sandhagen from a fellow guy in the division. And not to mention, Ricky is also giving the nod to Rob Font's hard work. I'm sitting here telling you that Ricky beat Rob. Rob won the decision. It's not Ricky's words. Ricky's cool with the way it went. Fair's fair. They raised his hand. Summer tight goes both ways. It was an awesome match, though. And if you look at that cut, right, that was very deep. I spoke with TJ's coach this morning, Daryl Christian. If you guys will recall on this fight, Sanhagen Dillashaw, you'll recall that was supposed to happen six weeks ago. Now, it got postponed because TJ took a cut. And while I'm not a doctor, but I love to play one on YouTube, when you have a cut and it heals, that's now called scar tissue. Scar tissue is not as strong, not as tough as skin. So if you get scar tissue and you get recracked in that same spot, you're likely to break open and start bleeding. At least more likely than if you hadn't had that cut in the first place. So I just asked the coach, I just asked Daryl Christian, hey, by the way, I read that that fight was canceled because of a cut. Is the place where TJ was bleeding in the ring, was that the same spot? He goes, the exact same spot. And he said, and by the way, if you ever rub your hand over TJ's head, he's got a bone right there. He said, in fact, doctors have suggested that they go in and shave that bone down a little bit because it's it's always going to break open. There is no relevance to any part of that as it pertains to the fight. I got inside scoop on a guy's cut. I thought I would share it with you. That's all that that is. I said, by the way, let me tell the audience, how many uh, stitches did it take to close? Daryl said, man, I don't know, but it was about 20. Okay, store that away, stay focused on TJ, because while this was never said to be a number one contender's bout, we said it, right? We all agreed as the audience, but this should be. I mean, whoever wins this fight should be the number one contender. I believe it's going to play out that way. And on one hand, that's a little bit disappointing because I believe all roads to TJ Dillashaw should lead you right into Uriah Faber's driveway. Don't think I'm going to get that, but I do think that TJ should get that title shot. So, okay, one small caveat, which is TJ's knee was bothering him. Now, that's a quote. His knee was bothering him. They MCL, they won't know the level of extent until they have an MRI. They are hoping, of course, that it's not torn. Now, an MCL injury, historically, is much better than an ACL injury. However, recovery time is very similar, which could kick the can six, seven months. At this spot in TJ's career, where he's been removed from the ring two and a half years, three years since a victory, it's one of those things where there's no time to spare, not to mention if Dillashaw won, just numbers might help you guys to quantify this. If TJ reclaims the championship, he will be the oldest champion ever south of 170 pounds. Fun stat. Just sharing it with you that time is of the essence. So as much as we're congratulating both guys, quite frankly, Sandhagen looked awesome. TJ Dillashaw looked awesome. TJ was a little grittier in the way he closed out rounds which is rare for a guy coming off a layoff. Ring rust. One piece of ring rust is not just timing, it's conditioning. TJ knew when to win. He knew when to get on top, when and where to control. Major credit. He gets major credit for that. Where does it go from here and how long are we going to continue to judge Dillashaw? I must tell you, every time I've seen TJ's name, it always says he's coming off an EPO bust. Now, that is very specific vernacular that has never 
That coat of paint has never been put on anybody before. Everybody gets put into the same category, which is PED, which is an USADA violation. It's one of those two terms. People are continuing to state specifically what the substance was. I don't understand that. I don't know why they're doing that. And either way, this is from a guy that played on that side of the tracks. Before you think you got to tell me, and this is why I'm coming to his defense. Look, either way, it's very unique to the way TJ's being treated. So let's stop doing that. People are talking about the return of John Jones. They're not talking about the return of John Jones, who's failed more drug tests than anybody. They're talking about Anderson Silva versus Logan Paul. They're not talking about Anderson Silva, who failed three drug tests and is now taking on Logan Paul. I'm just saying, in the, in the world of fairness, you want to kick a guy, go ahead and kick him, but we got to kick him all the same. TJ Dillashaw served his time. TJ Dillashaw is the number one contender. If that pains you, good. If you're happy with it, great. TJ Dillashaw is back and claiming a spot as one of the toughest guys in the UFC. And in case you missed it, there's some big news concerning two more of the toughest guys that the UFC has to offer. Yes, I did it. I kept a secret. All right, do you guys know how hard it is to keep a secret when you talk all the time? And not because I can't be trusted. It's hard to remember what was I told in confidence. You guys have been there, right? Kobe Covington versus Kamar Usman. I knew it. By the way, I didn't know it because I was actually told. I I was talking to Colby the other day. We were texting back and forth, completely unrelated, and I asked him, Kamara Usman fight, where are we at on that? Question mark. And guess what he said? Nothing. When they say nothing, that means it's on, and somebody's told them, zip your lid. So Dana revealed this to Brett Okamoto via ESPN.com. I've been in his spot. Colby was told not to tell. Colby kept a secret, too. Apparently, there's a little bit of credit going around here, but that's the fight, guys. I have never been to a fight, and I've told you guys this, but this is without exaggeration. I have never been to a fight that was closer, that was harder, that was dirtier than Usman versus Colby. This fight would have been made. You guys remember remember when Figueredo fought Moreno? It was this amazing contest. And the only thing about it that was a surprise is a lot of people didn't give Brandon Moreno a chance. I'm talking about part one. They really didn't give Moreno a chance. He was brought in because Figueredo needed somebody to fall down. So Moreno's name came out of the hat. I mean, in all fairness, that's how that fight came. So when that goes on to be an absolute blockbuster hit, it was even more of a surprise. But Dana went to the press conference that night. And this was in talk, this was in wake of Cody Garbrandt going to come down and save the division, which was a big, hot fight. And Dana goes to the press conference that night and goes, look, we're redoing this one. The end. I don't care how big business was, that performance deserves to be done again. But you remember when he did this, and he's done it a couple of other times. He would have done it the night of Colby versus Usman. It was that awesome of a match. There was a rumor, a false rumor, going around that Colby had a broken jaw. So Dana could not announce that fight. That has to be looked at, assessed. How long is that going to be? What's the layoff? What's the recovery? It's one of these things. And I only share that with you because that fight should have happened. That fight warranted an immediate rematch. The hardest, closest, dirtiest fight... I have ever been part of, not to mention the tension. There was tension in that room. And I've been on cards, so I've been in the back, where people have told me 
that that was going on that night, but I didn't get to feel it. I was on the other side of the curtain. I was there in the arena that night. My sweet old mother had people yelling at her because she was cheering for Colby. I mean, it's one of these matches where this has to be redone. And who's better is between those guys. But we found the right two guys. If Usman's the baddest dude in the world, as it currently set, great. He's part of the match. If Colby is the baddest dude, former interim champion, thought maybe that fifth round was stopped a little early, right? Don't forget that part about the fight either. It had just enough controversy. There was just enough question. Colby was on his knees on a single. Usman's hitting him. Fight gets stopped. It was a unique position. I'm just saying in the world of storytelling, this fight offers everything. Thank goodness we're going to see it again. Coming up next, I want to talk about some of Conor McGregor's recent deleted tweets and what we should make of them. But first, here's a word about today's sponsor, 10,000. Guys, I want to tell you about some new training gear I've been using by a company called 10,000. And as a lifelong athlete, I will say, if I would have found this workout gear years ago, it just gave me a confidence. It feels better. And guys, I know you can relate to this. You get up, you put on a good shirt, one that you like, one that feels good. It makes you feel good. It motivates you for the workout. In all fairness, that's what I love most about 10,000. First heard about this from Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz and one of the Gracies were asked, what do they need in training gear? Break this down in the world of MMA. Do you need it light? Do you need it breathable? Whatever questions they got asked, they did a great job. So when Dominic got this done, I bought some to support him more than anything else. And I must tell you, I've been running in their interval shorts and their versatile shirt. I love the waistband on these shorts and the shirt liners. I appreciate that it stretched a little bit, but it's breathable, high quality material. Look, I can tell you what a great job this is and how you make these things. Do you care? Do you feel good? Do you look good? Yes, you will. And here's a fun fact too. A team of over 200 athletes tested the gear, right, that Dominic helped to design. They loved it too. 10,000 guys has over 10,000 five-star reviews on their products and they're still offering free shipping all in time for any product to get to you for any holiday or birthdays you have coming up if you don't like it no problem return it they'll give you your money back they offer a lifetime guarantee that shows you how much they believe in their quality I got a call to action 10,000 is offering my listeners 15% off your purchase. All you got to do is go to 10,000.cc and enter the code CHAIL. You will receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter the code CHAIL for a 15% savings. How long can old CHAIL get away? Defending and making excuses for Conor McGregor before you guys start to turn on me and say, Chill, you look like a fool. Because I got to be approaching that, right? I got to be real close to approaching whatever good faith credits I have that I continue to use for Conor to being expired. I feel as though, or at least I did. I feel as though I understand Conor on a different level. And therefore, it's incumbent upon me to explain to everybody what it is Connor's doing. I might be approaching a point 
where I'm wrong. Maybe I don't understand. I mean, maybe I don't understand. I thought that Connor had a code, and I, all I can do is personalize this, right? Golden rule of life. Treat somebody the way you would want to be treated. Judge how they handled the situation by how you would handle the situation. And I just look at I had a code. I was going to say whatever I wanted. I didn't use profanity. For whatever reason, I left profanity out of it. Never used a four-letter word, but I had a code. I will say whatever I want, but I will show up and I will answer for it every time. I will not go after a guy who in the rankings or in the popularity contest was beneath me. They're going to be equal or above, which I justified, right or wrong, that they can take it. That guy's got more money than me. That guy's got more main events than me. That guy's got more fans than me. Whatever it was, and therefore, he can take it. It was my code. There wasn't a lot to that. I had pretty free reign. Did not care who I upset. As a matter of fact, when I sat down to strategize, I would make sure that it was going to upset as much people as possible. Great. I felt as though Connor was doing that, but now I'm not seeing the code. That's the only part where I'm lost on this. I saw Connor, the potential scumbag after Poirier, but the potential entertainer. And I saw him succeeding at entertaining, which was his job. It hasn't ended. We then saw the deleted tweets. Now, deleted tweets for me is the worst kind of a tweet because now it comes back to the code where a man is going to stand on it. A grown man is going to stand on what I said for better or worse, I said it. When you start to get into the John Jones territory of being a tough guy who then tries to wash it away as though it never happened. Like, get into the shower and just wash it away as though those accidents happened. It's cowardly. It's very cowardly. If you said something wrong, you don't have to just stand there. If you got it wrong, you can say, I got it wrong. You can even apologize for it. To delete it as a way of getting around the responsibility of the words that you use, but moreover, getting the responsibility that a man has to apologize when he's wrong is cowardly. And one thing about Connor's tweets that have in line with John Jones's tweet is that they all come between 11 and, and 1 in the morning, right? They're drunk or high or a combination of the two. Is that an excuse? Because I've been giving it, I've been making it one. Maybe it makes it worse. In Connor's case, though, specifically, we know he's going to be on medicines. Have you ever taken a painkiller? Have you ever read about painkillers? I mean, one of the things is euphoria. It has an effect on your mood and your personality and who you are. It generally raises you. But either way, it makes you somebody else. And Connor doesn't have a choice right now. He has to be on certain medications. His body's broken in two. He's got a nail holding his bones. I mean, that's got to hurt, right? So he's, I'm assuming, I'm assuming he's on certain medications. Now, I know that he was when he was in the hospital. And that's when these tweets first started, and then they started to be deleted, which is why I've always made a case for him. Hey, guys, just consider, first off, this is a guy that talks a little trash, but this is a guy who entertains and keeps to a code. He's now medicated. It's not him. Give him some room. Now that the time has gone by, he hit one last night 
on Khabib. Khabib sent a message directly to Dustin Poirier on something known as Twitter that said, good always defeats evil. Connor responded to it saying, so COVID was good and father was evil because Khabib's father passed away of COVID. That is beyond, right? Not good. Not only my opinion, and I'm sure it's shared by you, it's Connor's opinion who deleted it. But deleting it is a way of trying to escape what needs to be done, which is to apologize for it. And old Chill can keep coming out day after day and saying, hey guys, give Connor some grace, give him some room, he's broken in two, he's a known drunk, and he, and he happens to be on medicines right now against his will. He has no choice, he's not himself. I mean, I, I can get away with this so many times. But I'm running out of bullets here. I'm running out of slack. I need to know, and all anti-heroes, all great heels, and there's nothing more bankable than a cool heel. But a cool heel is rare. You're talking about Stone Cold Steve Austin territory. You're talking about the rock territory where he's an agitator, he's the bad guy, and everybody comes out to see him and explodes. It is the most bankable thing you can possibly have in sport, in a draw, in the entertainment and film business, in the singing and performing industry. A cool heel. Connor has been a cool heel for a meaningful period of time. He's starting to mark out for his own gimmick. We are whoever we pretend to be. And if you are not very conscious that if you're playing one person for X amount of hours in a day, and then you're going back to the real person, you can look back, it starts to spill over. So is this the booze mixed with the medications against his will in all fairness? In all fa what's the difference between drugs and medicine, right? Drugs are, are, are derogatory for injury. They put, somebody's putting something... Somebody down for doing something illegal. Medicine can be the same thing, but if taken appropriately. I believe that Connor's on medicine. I believe that would make a level of sense. I believe it changes his mood. I believe it changes his behavior. I believe that when he gets on that phone between 11 and 1 a.m., much like John Jones, and then realizes what he did and he deletes it. But it's got to stop. I'm running out of room here because I'm not seeing the code. If Connor was able-bodied and was about to get in there with somebody... Fair game. If he was willing to answer for what it is he said, and by the way, that's eminent with a contract that's signed in a venue that's in front of you, fair game. For the most part, but fair game. Because now I'll at least see the code. When you're hiding out in a different country, in bed and lonely, speaking to people over your phone, because apparently there's not a person that cares about you in the room enough to take the damn device out of your hand, and that's another one. You guys remember when John Jones was going through this and we're all sitting back and just going, how does his management team and or his coaches not just get him a driver? Real simple. Go do all the stuff you're doing, John. Don't drive. Remember when that was happening? I'm seeing something similar with Connor right now, but it's a device. Why is nobody removing the device from his hand? Somebody's bringing him the medicines that I'm alluding to. Somebody's bringing him the fifth that I'm alluding to. Not just hopping around, getting all of this stuff on his own. I mean, in all fairness, take the goddamn phone from him. 
And if you're going to be an anti-hero, I, if I'm going to be your fan, have got to know that you live by a code. And that's where my problems come in right now. I don't see the code. I don't see the end game. I don't see the bravery. I find it very cowardly when somebody says something and then just tries to delete it as opposed to apologizing for it. If it was wrong, say it was wrong. Be a man about it. So Conor McGregor's antics have been all the rage on social media this week. And another topic that's getting a lot of attention, the UFC's pay structure. So let's take a moment to talk about what's happening and then I'll also tell you how one of the UFC's biggest stars responded. Dean Thomas came out and he was talking about, and Dean Thomas, for my money, is as good of an expert in martial arts as you're going to find. I, he can coach, he could do it himself, he can judge the guy. He's great. Dean Thomas is a terrific mind, and he brought up a very interesting point, which had to do with win and show. And he's not the first to bring it up, but he might. He might go back as far as anybody. He even referenced, you can check my MySpace page, just meaning that he's been saying this for a long time and isn't a new idea, and that's true. I've heard him say it before. When I talk about the win in the show, the way fighters are paid generally, 95% or more, is here's what you get to show up and do the match. That will constitute the weigh-in. That will constitute walking out on fight night. But here's what you get if you win. And equally broad of a stroke is it's usually the same thing. If you're getting 25, you're getting another 25. 100, another 100. You guys understand. What Coach Dean Thomas is suggesting is that the win bonus is making guys more boring because they're just trying to win. And he believes that if it was a flat fee, somewhere in the middle of those two numbers, and then a bonus more of a generic bonus, like the same amount for everybody as long as you get a finish, that you would have more exciting fights. Now, that's a really interesting point. He went on to... I don't know if I agree with it, but it's an interesting point. And the part where I don't know if I agree is the psychology of each fight. Like, for example, I never felt it. I never once felt it or thought I'm, I'm going to take more risks or less risks for the win bonus. My strategy, and I personalized, but it was the exact same the whole way through. I'm going to go as hard as I can. It was going to be chaos. Going to be some hope involved. There's going to be some hard work involved. Never thought about the dollar sign. Dean Thomas then was talking about the 10-8 round. And currently the 10-8 round is used for when a fight is eligible to be stopped. But it wasn't. It could have been, but it wasn't. So the judges can come in and give a reward, even though the fight is going to see another round. Dean's talking about what if it wasn't? What if that's not what a 10-8 meant? What if a 10-8 meant that you controlled the guy, that you clearly had more offense than this guy? What if we used a 10-7 for when a round is eligible for stoppage? Again, I don't share an opinion, but I did find that to be a very interesting point from a mind that I greatly respect, his. And there is a piece of me that has sat back and wondered how this sport has never been revisited. The sport of boxing was revisited many times. Sport of boxing, you could have 100 rounds in boxing. You guys aware of that? But every time there was a knockdown, that was a round. It wasn't done by time. 
So you come out, you hit a guy, the gloves were a lot smaller back then, the talent was a lot less, a lot, there was a lot more people falling down. Boom, that ended the round. There was a break, you come back, it was automatically round number two. Did you guys know that that was one of the things in boxing? Then they started to put a round system in, and even within my lifetime, there was 15 rounds. I've seen Sugar Ray Leonard, just by example, go 15 rounds. Now that is way too many. The human body is not made for that. Not only are the athletes not made for that, there's nobody that wants to see it. It's terrible. So boxing stepped in and tried to fix itself and dropped it down to 12 rounds. Now boxing, I would encourage, is going the right way, but they need to do it a couple more times. They need to get down to this eight-round business that we're seeing the Mike Tysons and the Roy Juniors and the Oscar De La Hoyas and the Pauls doing. Eight rounds, it's just a lot better. A lot better action, a lot more activity. This is one guy's opinion. I'm just sharing that it should be revisited. I'm also sharing, moreover, that the history of combat has been revisited, except MMA. MMA is one of those things where, at some point, somebody said five rounds for a title fight. Somebody said 15 minutes for a non-title fight. And that's just what it was. Don't think you have to correct me to the early days of 1993 when it was one unlimited round. And the only reason I'm saying don't try to correct me is there was no commissions involved then. So that wasn't actually a set rule. And even when that was advertised to us all, it was not true. There was a pay-per-view window. That thing was going to go off the air, and that fight was going to get stopped at some point. That was nothing more than marketing. So I, I, I'm not going to count that. I'm going to exclude it and stick by what I maintain, that MMA has just not been revisited. And it would seem as though to be in line with other sports at some point. Because what are the chances? Just on a logical standpoint, what are the chances that on the first day of picking how many rounds there should be and how long those rounds should consist of, that we got it right. <laughs> what, what, would the, what would the absolute chance be that we got it right on day number one, particularly knowing what we know now about the advancements of talent? And that's indisputable. I can't imagine you would dispute it if I must prove my premise. Okay, great. There used to be tournaments. You fought three guys in one night. They don't do that anymore. They don't even fight two guys in one night. Why? Because the guys can't go on. The guys are so good now. There's not these squash matches. There's not these dominant matches. It's just too much, and people wouldn't show up. They wouldn't show up for the semifinals or for the finals, which they even quit doing back in the day when the guys were terrible and still learning. It would seem as though what Dean Thomas is suggesting makes a level of sense. And... I don't like anything that supports the idea of complicating the judging more or putting any more onus on the judges. The judges are having an extremely hard time now with the very limited structure that they're put under of getting it right and moreover being consistent. If they got it wrong all the time, we're not having a conversation. That would just be the way it is. Consistency is so important. We don't see a lot of that. So putting more of an onus on a judge or having another level of sophistication is something that I think all of us would agree, no, we need to not do that. I like, I have always liked, and I'm not bullish on this. Like this isn't the hill that I want to die on. But I have always liked the way Pride did it. Pride, to remind you guys, had three rounds. The first round was 10 minutes. The next two rounds were five. As weird and goofy as it is, I, I don't love the, the, the time structure. I never understood it. I'm just sharing with you that they did have a breakup and they did have three rounds, but it was to be judged as one long fight. The judges were instructed to not look at rounds, no 10-9 must system, pretend there is no break, continue, pretend it's one continuous 20 minutes. Who dominated the other more? 
And you could lose 17 minutes of a pride fight. But if you whipped that guy's ass for three, they would raise your hand. It was just a different scoring system that I think many people agree to. I think. I remember a night that BJ Penn clearly lost to George St. Pierre. But BJ, in the one round that he won, did a lot of damage. He busted George's face up. He won that first round dominantly. He barely lost the next two. And BJ had a real problem with that. He's going, guys, how can you say he won? Look at his face and look at mine. Now, that's more of a playground rule. I was surprised to see the great BJ Penn even go in that direction. But to share with you, there was a lot of people that agreed with him. A lot of people are looking at going, yeah, man, you beat this guy's ass. So what that he controlled you for more? Well, it's not to be revisited. Those were very clearly the rules, and the rules were very clearly followed. I just suggest for you that if it would have been done under the pride rules, which is forget about the rounds, forget about the strategy, forget about all this gamesmanship. This is just one long fight, whether you get a water break and, and pat it down with a towel in between or not. For me, that made a level of sense. I got it. I would like to know what you guys think. Francis Ngannou had a similar opinion to the one that Dean Thomas laid out, which had to do, and Francis was speaking from a point of robberies. That was an actual word that he used. But what, he, what, what he's talking about is when a fighter goes into a match and he's getting incentivized, he's getting paid to show up, but he's getting paid again to win. He should have won. And they take it from him. What do we do? Now, the champ brings up a great point. The problem with this, and this is a day-old question. Francis isn't the first one to notice this. The problem is, what is the suggestion? Francis didn't offer one. I have the same problem as Francis has got. I also can't offer you a suggestion. But I mean, what do you do? You've got your contracts. This is the way the sport works. You want to incentivize a guy for good work, right? That's what we do in America. I'm watching the Olympic Games. There's some people that are getting paid to take dives. In North America, we incentivize people to succeed. So the contract is set up that way. It makes perfect sense. But what do you do in the event that it went the wrong way blatantly? And I don't just mean from an ethical standpoint, because you might want to consider ethically what should happen, right? You're looking at a pie. But you also want to speak from a legal standpoint. Who's going to enforce that? And that's where the problem comes. Nobody. The legal enforcement is that of which turns to the judges, and we live with that result. So see where this, this becomes a problem? Because I'm with Francis on this. Like, I, my heart really feels for people that had one taken from them. And Francis even went on to talk about, now the guy's got to go home, he's heartbroken, he's frustrated, he's waiting for a turnaround, which he doesn't know what it's going to be. Oh, and by the way, his pocketbook's a little light. Francis is right, for sure. But now that we've identified something that we feel is a problem, we must be able to offer a solution. And the solution simply can't be that popular opinion is going to rule and that the company is going to have to write a second check. First off, that's wrong. Second off, that's not going to happen. It's silly. But third off, that could not be legally enforced. And these fights are just that. They're legal. It's very important that you know that the government is regulating them with a predetermined set of rules and remedies. And one of the remedies, if you go to the time limit, is you turn to the licensed judges. And I've always been curious. I'd love to hear. If I was talking to Francis right now, I would love to ask him this question, which is, Champ, are you more frustrated that the person is not getting the money 
that the masses believe they should have earned? Or are you more frustrated that when the judges continue to turn something in that baffles us, that there is no remedy or disciplinary action taken against them? Because that's where I continue to find myself. I don't have a problem with bad judging. I've done some refereeing before. I've never done some judging. I've done refereeing before. I will tell you, there are matches that I got wrong. Where I'll look back on, you know what, that should have been three, and I only called it one, and it changed the outcome. I mean, I will just share with you that I don't really pick on the judges. Like, there's human error, and there's mistakes that, that, that are made. That's life. It's a lot like the, the chains in football. It's not a perfect science, but at least in theory, over the course of a career, what goes around comes around, and for the most part, it's true. You get one taken from you, but you, you got a freebie over here. It's, it's one of those deals. There is a level of frustration that you would have a commission who is licensing athletes and cornermen. And if they do anything wrong, they will take money from them. They will take a license from them. They will embarrass them. They never, ever do it with their own. And that's where you start to look at it, and it appears corrupt. It appears as a good old boy system where the commission and the referees and the judges are over here and the fighters and cornermen over here, and then the promoter sits on another island. And I think that is how absolutely every commission views it. But that's not what the bylaws say. The commission sits here, and everybody else equally is underneath and has to answer. It just seems as though the commission will never sanction a judge. And the sanctioning doesn't have to be extreme. We're not talking about bringing somebody in and embarrassing. We're not talking about a court trial here. We're talking about you've got three wrong. You're going to sit this one out. You're not getting another main event. You need to come in and explain to us how you're seeing this. I will tell you in the sport of amateur wrestling, that's the way it is right now. Amateur. These guys aren't paid. These guys aren't having their name announced on TV. These aren't, guys aren't getting to some great event, dressed in a suit, sitting ringside. They're amateur. It's volunteer, and they are still overseen. Here's how it works. Very similar to the judges in MMA. There are three referees. One's called the ref. One's called the mat chair. You, you've got the third person. But they will keep stats. The sport of wrestling will keep stats over not only a year, but over a quad, which is makes... Four years for the Olympic Games. So imagine, there's three people. If the referee calls for a point, and the chair and the mat official both call for two points, now that referee just got overridden. And the sport of wrestling will view that because it was two to one, they were right. Whether you love that system or not, that will affect the score of the referee who continues to not agree with what the other licensed officials have. And it's one of these things that you might want to pay attention to. We are consistently having judges who are not only going against the audience, they're not only going against the participants, they're not only going against the sport, they're going against fellow licensed judges. It's food for thought. This is not a finished idea by me. I'm a little bit clumsy, right? I've got, a, I've got some of the pieces. But you don't always want to just do majority rule, right? The one guy that didn't have what the other guy said could be the guy that's right. But in anywhere in life, you would come in and you would explain yourself. Why did you have it this way? Why did you guys have it a different way? 
And if they are grossly adverse, there would be a conversation. There would be something that happens, not just the reassignment. And it's a very big deal. And as much as the commission wants to just dismiss it and go, well, it's just a, it's just, just a fight, doesn't matter anyway. It's those guys' lives. But moreover, they're being gamed on. So when I tell you that this is a legal perspective and a legal question and these, these outcomes are legally binding, there's consequences to it and there's a reason. There's a built-in incentive to have integrity within the scoring. To close out today's show, I want to step outside of the MMA world and take you into my world because I've got some stories from the weekend I'd like to share with you guys. Let me tell you guys about my weekend. So, my wife runs to the store. She comes back. She comes right in the house and she says to me, and I'm sure that you guys can relate, we have two licensed drivers in my house. My kids are very young. My wife has a license, I have a license, therefore she has a vehicle and I have a vehicle to get around. Okay. She comes into the house and she tells me, right when she walks in the door, she's got the groceries, she sets them and she walks right up to me and she says, hey, I parked really close to your car. So when you leave tomorrow, be careful. Now, that means nothing to me. I don't care how close you are. I'm not an expert driver. I'm not Mario Andretti. But I assure you, it does not matter how close you parked. If I can get into my vehicle and get it started, I can get out of there safely. I don't think much of it. I say, okay. She does a couple of more tasks and she says it again. She says, I parked very close to you. You need to be real careful when you leave tomorrow. Again, I said, okay. She got a couple more things. Now she hits at me with it a third time, how close she parked to me. Now, we have a driveway. It's a two-car driveway. She, we both back in. So she backs in and I back in. The relevance to that being is no matter how close she parked, I'm assuming I can't get my door open, right? I parked close to her, can't get my door open. I can just go on the other side. I could just go through the passenger door. I didn't think it warranted me being told three times how close she parked. I truly did not think anything of this. I went to sleep. I had a great night. I get up the next day. I head outside to take the garbage out. She hit my car. And I don't mean she hit my car like she hit my car and she then moved the car. The cars were connected when I walked out the following day. They're connected. It was kind of a wheel. Like if there's any part of the car you could hit, this was the good part. It's like wheel tire, but then they've got fenders. And so it's the fenders that are now intertwined and I can't figure out who's in front of who. Because in theory, if she backed in, she'd be in front of me, which means she, that's the car I want to move. But if I'm wrong and I can't quite see because of the fenders and she actually bumped back behind me, then I got to move my, my truck first or I'm going to rip part of her car, right? It's whichever one's in front. And I can't tell. So I've got to walk around, and this is in a V-shape, mind you. So the engines are out this way, and, the, and the, the rear ends are connected. Now, i got to walk around and go inside of the V to try to figure out, again, because it was like an optical illusion with the fenders. It was very, very tough to tell. I walk, I put my glasses on, and I'm trying to figure this thing out. I take a picture on my iPhone and then I, I stretch it out. I'm, I'm re I got to see who's in front of who to rip the whole side off. The other problem that I have as I'm investigating this is I live in a neighborhood, which means the neighbors are going, what are they going to think? What would you think if you're driving home and there's a wreck within the driveway? Like, what would you think?
I'd tell you what I would think. I would tell people. I would quickly tell people. I would be talking trash. I would probably call a guy, say, hey, by the way, see so you backed into one another, dumb dumb. What happened there? I mean, this would, it would be a funny thing. So my wife and I don't know how to handle this because we've got to figure this out. I need to now bring her in on it to see what vehicle's in front of who. My car is black, her car is black. I mean, when I tell you this was an optical illusion, it was very difficult to see. And at the same time, <laughs> you got to play it off like you're not totally embarrassed. And you got to you got to like talk loud so all the neighbors can see that that you're not embarrassed about it. And you're trying to explain this away. And I can't explain it because her her vehicle is new. Now, in my house, when we say new, that means new to us. But we buy used vehicles. We're a used vehicle family. It's new to her. I've driven it one time. And you know when you put things in reverse and it comes up on the on the dash? If you have one of those those rear drive, you know how that thing? Hers doesn't work. The lines are goofy. Like you can see the mirror, but then it gives you these automated lines. And they are goofy. They're a little bit off. So I know exactly how this happened. But I still need my neighbors to know. I need my neighbors to know how this happened. So then it turns into this whole big show and we're, oh, film this, honey, as I pull. And then we, let's put it on Instagram, like as, as a way of downplaying that you are in this spot. So I go inside. That's the whole story on that. I ended up getting a result that I never did know. It truly was an illusion. I could not see black on black and fender on fender, tire on tire. I could not see who was in front of who. I just deduced logically that because she's the one that backed in, it is much more likely that she's in front of me. So I pulled her car out. It did end well. No other damage was done. It's right on the tires and wheels. Maybe in theory, somebody could buff that out. So I go inside and I'm I'm on a little bit of a high right now because the Olympics are on. I'm not a big sports guy, but I love the Olympics. I love the whole thing. I love the pride. I love the way the nations come together. I love the sportsmanship that after conflict, everybody shakes hands and walks away. I was raised on that, right? As a wrestler, you have conflict, you have conflict resolution, but it's over. It stays on the mat. Okay. So I have the Olympics on 24-7. My TV will not come off. For the next 21 days till this is done. If I'm asleep and I wake up, boom, I want some results. And I will tell you, I saw some sports that I haven't seen before. They're doing three-on-three basketball. Did you guys know that? It's called three-on-three. Apparently, you can get a gold medal for three-on-three. If this has been around from the beginning of time, excuse me, but I didn't know. I've never seen it before. I deeply resent the way the United States picks an Olympic team for basketball. Now that's three on three. I'm talking about Dream Team. And the Dream Team first debuted in Barcelona in 1992. Olympics have always been said to be pro versus amateur. And at some point, the IOC, whose greatest trick that they ever pulled is convincing athletes to do something and get nothing for it. But at some point in 1992, realized there was a whole bunch of pros. Andre Agassi comes to mind. Some golfers come to mind. The entire Dream Team in this example. That are willing to do that and would be great for TV and great for ratings. So the IOC came out and said, oh, no, 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 no. This has never been amateur versus pro. You're misunderstanding. You just can't be paid to do this. You can be a pro in another walk of life, but for this, as long as you get nothing, you have eligibility. Now, that is absolutely not the rule, and that is beyond not the intent. That was the scumbags that are the IOC realizing what an opportunity this is, and boom, the Dream Team is born. The Dream Team goes out and wins the gold. They were the surest lock for a goal. Sports Illustrated called them that. The, the surest lock 
in the history of the Olympics for a gold medal. Sure enough, they won it. Well, over time, they've ran into some problems. And even this year, they lost in the first round to France. Now, that's a rant, Robin. This will all work itself out. None of that is my point. i got no problem with them winning or losing. That's what the games are about. What I have a problem with is that you take a group of rich, famous, elitist professionals that are not a team, you buy them all plane tickets, fly them out to the games, let them walk out as the torch gets lit, and you leave the amateurs who are working hard at home. It's not right. And if the five guys that represent this dream team are truly the best five guys, I got no problem with it as long as another five can challenge them like every other sport. If we're going to just take a team, first off, we need to say that ahead of time and we need to have some kind of a competition. Now, it would be much more appropriate to take the defending NCAA champions to take defending amateurs that keep within the spirit of the game who actually work together. But if you're going to do the whole pro thing and whoever there is getting paid off real quietly by the IOC, and make no mistake, somebody's getting paid to put this team together, otherwise you would bring a real team, they should still be able to be challenged. And this should be taken up by the courts. Five other guys should get together and sue for that right. And it, it is beyond inappropriate to take what should be amateur status and hand it to somebody without even having a game, without even having a competition or a tournament. And now you're also seeing the results. You're starting to see it's not just great players. It really is that. It really is a team. You do have to have coaches and you do have to have plays and you do have to work in unison, which is another thing that the games represent, which is so beautiful about seeing this, even in the defeat and in the face of embarrassment that the U.S. is going through right now, they deserve it. They're not a team. They're not working together. They're not the right five guys. I don't begrudge those guys. My phone rang. I can get that opportunity. I'm taking it too. But it's not right, and it's not the spirit of the games. And whether we want to have a high school basketball championships and we condense this thing down and whoever wins that gets to be our Olympians, or I think more appropriately would be the NCAA, but the way they're doing it now is not right, and it should be contested. It should be fought. I'm seeing another sport. I want to like it. Beach volleyball. I want to like that because I played some volleyball largely in PE class. It was awesome. My buddy Justin and I looked forward. We'd set it up for each other. We'd spike it. Volleyball is just a lot of fun. It's painfully hard to watch on TV because of their incessant need to congratulate each other after every play. Whether you got a point or you didn't, they got to go over and do a high five type situation. I will tell you my final volleyball story. When I was in college, I used to go to watch the girls play volleyball. And the volleyball players used to come to watch us wrestle. And the crowds looked very similar. You're going to have a couple of classmates, and then you're just going to have the parents of the players. They were hurting for a crowd as bad as we were. I just understand that. My final game, I was at University of Oregon. They had one win and 11 losses when I checked out as a fan. But we were playing Stanford. Stanford was the defending NCAA champions. So in volleyball, you play best of three, okay? I think it's the first one to 15. I believe you have to win by at least two, but then you, you always play a best of three. That's just a built-in series. So we would go out, we the Oregon Ducks, and we'd warm up forever. Our girls would be soaking in sweat. They'd have to get Gatorade and sit on the bench. And then they'd go play a game, an actual game. So then you have a quick break where, where teams just kind of switch sides, you get up and these, these girls move down to these chairs and these girls move down to these chairs. I mean, if I was to say that was a four-second process, 
I'm probably leaving a couple of seconds on the table. And there's the Oregon Ducks out there with their 1-11 record. And they're warming up and they're setting each other. And there's Stanford sitting on the bench, recovering. I yelled as an audience member. Okay, I was 21 years old, but I had a level of frustration because I did have a level of commitment to the team. Saying, girls, you just played for an hour. How are you not warm? And I, they were turning and looking at me. There was nobody in the arena. I was yelling. I want the coach to hear it too. You're warming up. You just played. You're soaking in sweat. If you don't agree with Chael, then look on the other side of the court where the Stanford defending national champions, to a man, are sitting, waiting and getting ready. And it was one of these things where watching beach volleyball is going to be very tough for me. They remind me of the Oregon Ducks. Even if they bring home the gold medal, it doesn't matter. You don't congratulate somebody after every play. It's weird. All right, guys, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed these stories. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you keep leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts like this one that says, Chael could talk about paint drying and I would be interested. Well, that was very nice. I won't talk about paint drying, but I will talk about much more when I see you all again on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.